Hey there, everyone. It's your co-host, Toby, here. Welcome to The Yellow Pill and welcome to our off-season bonus edition. If this is your first time listening ever, we have just wrapped up our sixth season and are now taking a break to prepare for our seventh. Even though we're on a break, we definitely cannot keep you all hanging. And so this episode is part of our off-season bonus episodes where we provide our opinions, comments and thoughts on trending issues at home and abroad, as well as sharing unorthodox but creative dialogues or monologues that we think you might enjoy. These off-season episodes tend to be shorter, raw, and unfiltered, so we hope you enjoy them. All right, that's it from me. Enjoy your listen. My check, one, two. All right, so this is a bit of a weird one, but hey, now's the chance to try weird things, innit? All right, so this is quite weird, as I said, um, but let's do this. Someone invited me um, a couple of days ago, I think, three, four days ago, someone invited me to see the new Spider-Man. But I kind of turned it down because I was, you know, busy, in quotes. But the truth is I'm not really a movie person like that, like a cinema movie person like that. Anyway, um, I think, so after that request that was made, I just began to think about, you know, why do we like superheroes, superhero movies so much? Um, I mean, we should be beyond the action, beyond the novelty. There are stories where we already know what's going to happen, you know? So I just began to wonder, what is it about those movies that intrigue us, you know, so much? I mean, myself included as well. I'm a big Batman fan, as you can, well, maybe you can't imagine, but I'm a big Batman fan. And then I began to read about it. Um, and then I stumbled upon something else, actually, that just was not what I was looking for, but was interesting to see. Obviously, still relating to superheroes in that sense, and it was just the idea, and perhaps more interesting, it was the idea of superheroes and masculinity in the context of parental figures and how they've been portrayed across several superhero movies over the last decades, you know. Different parental figures, particularly father figures, right? And, you know, that was quite interesting. And it was a body of work done by a person called Kara Varan, Kvaran, K-V-A-R-A-N. Not quite sure what gender they are, but I don't think that matters. Um, Kara Kvaran. And I, I read it and it was quite an interesting body of work. So I just thought, let me share this with everyone. You know, it might not be a cup of tea and that's fine. But if you think you would vibe to such Interesting take on uh, superhero movies that we all loved since we were kids till adulthood. You know, why not just see whether you like it? So I mentioned earlier, let me take a, a sip of um, my drink, sorry. Toby's not here today, so it's just me. No one can stop my drinking. Um, no alcohol, just ripening up, people. Ripening up. Okay, back to basics. So I mentioned earlier that my favorite superhero is Batman. Um, for many reasons. One is just the, possibly the, I like Batman because maybe he's the most real in the sense of no superpowers per se, but just a martial arts combat um, expert and someone who is just like, obviously a billionaire, charismatic, dark past, yeah, so I guess it's just the maybe most relatable character, possibly. But anyway, Batman was brought to the, to the silver screen around um, 
1989, right? And, you know, I think it was the... No, I think, according to Varan, um, Batman was the 10th um, comic-based superhero made in American cinema. So then, at that point, when it was brought to the screen, it was played by Michael Keaton. Now, Michael Keaton is the dude who was in Birdman, which is another movie about Broadway and stuff. I don't know if you've seen Birdman, um, but it's an interesting movie. Um, but yeah, but since 1989, Batman morphed and changed over the years until 2005, which was when Christopher Nolan... Um, did a reboot of the franchise, right? And introduced Batman Begins. Now that's that's the one that has what's his name? I can't I can't forget his name now. Uh, what's the guy's name? Batman Begins. Uh come on. What's his name? I'm just gonna look that up real quick. Batman Begins in Google. I can't, I can't believe I forgot his name. Christian Bale, of course. Christian Bale, that's weird. I forgot his name. Anyway. Yeah, so Christian Bale's reboot was uh, was one of my favorites, actually. I think many people like Christian Bale, many millennials particularly. But yeah, so Christian Bale's reboot by Christopher Nolan was when well, had dark and gritty Batman, you know, and he took on Batman's origin story. And the film highlights, you know, Bruce Wayne's relationship with his father. And it features different flashbacks, you know, where Thomas Wayne taught Bruce Wayne many life lessons. You know, and he and he soothed him after his nightmares, rescued him from wells, and he fixed his broken bones. Right, but his mother, Bruce Wayne's mother, Martha, and she appeared in a few of the scenes, but she was always in the background and sometimes even out of focus. And she barely spoke, you know, and her death was her greatest contribution in the story. Again, according to Kara, whose body of work I'm reading out to you guys and making sense of myself. But Bruce's memory of his dad was much more important, apparently, um, since that was what gave him a sense of morality and justice. I don't know if you guys remember the story, but that was much more giving him a sense of, you know, good and evil in that sense. And his father's voice often spurred him into action, and desire for his father's approval to carry out his legacy, you know, drove him to become a superhero. Again, as we saw in the movie, according to, to Karakwavan. And in many ways, Batman Begins was way more intimate and a personal narrative. And, and it kind of like ushered in a new generation of films that further tied, you know, the heroics and the superhero story into the masculinity domain, which is what this um, person is really, really trying to argue for or against. Now, like Batman, most superheroes are all orphans. And they lost their parents in sudden terrible acts of violence, you know, which then caused them to have future angsts and spore epic heroics. You know, so Bruce Wayne, you know, lost his parents. Tony Stark, Iron Man, lost his folks. Clark Kent, Superman. Peter Parker, Spider-Man. Hal Jordan, who is Green Lantern. Matt Murdock, who is Daredevil. Steve Rogers, of course, Captain America. Lost their parents, right? And, and this idea of, like, losing you know, their parents or being hyper-masculine orphans has kind of worked its way from comic books into our blockbuster movies that we all like. And as these films gain popularity over time, you know, they continue to follow a specific American pattern of gender relations, you know, and ideology. You know, 
most recent movies, superhero films, often evoke that father-son drama, you know, and that then emphasizes the heroics as masculine and homosexual stories above men as being very, very important. Now, like Batman, actually, superheroes also lost their mothers, right? And they struggle to fulfill the legacies of their inspirational fathers, keyword inspirational, right? And now where we see women and girls in these movies, they often serve to like advance the superheroes' stories, you know, either as love interests or as women, ladies in distress to be rescued. But they were really the characters that motivated, you know, superheroes into their super identities. It's really women, it's often the men, right? Now, while superheroes do occasionally try to avenge their mothers, sometimes, I'm trying to think of a few, sometimes it happens, right? It's really ever the maternal figure, the mom, who is, whose memories are honored by the hero, right? We already saw mothers' deaths, deaths, you know, inspired heroes into great actions. In fact, most times, if you notice, the moms were really present. Whether they're dead or alive, they're really present in the stories. If they were praying on the screen, then they were either just maybe being, wringing their hand in worry, making dinner, or supportively just touching the hero's hair in like a gentle, loving, maternal way. All right? They weren't doctors or scientists. They were not the ones to meet. They were not the ones to be admired, exalted, or like, ooh, look, looked up to in that sense. And these women are just mothers. They were barely seen, really acknowledged. And this person, you know, the author says, like, he says in a very funny way, he says, he or she says that their most, con- their most important contribution was their absence, which I think was a bit harsh. But again, I think given my thoughts about superhero movies in my head, I think they are right. Anyway, um, analyzing comic books, comic-based superhero films, you know, reviews the roles of father figures from a, from a gendered perspective, you know. Um, there's always like a near completely reliance on male role models and the removal of like female counterparts. And this has like created a film genre that we all love, but doubly reinforces the idea that only male characters are inspirational or to be emulated, right? So I think part of what inspired, um, again, Kara, uh, Kara, I can't probably say the last name, it's pronounced K-V-A-R-A-N, Kavan, Kavaran, Kavaran. I mean, part of what inspired um, Kara Kavaran to do this body of work was, um, you know, to analyze comic book-based superhero films, to cover all the feature-length, you know, live-action superhero films that have used characters, storylines that appeared in comic books, like the ones I've mentioned, whether Marvel or DC, right? And they just, like, use that to understand how are masculinity, paternal figures, and maternal figures portrayed so how maternal paternal figure portrayed you know what's really masculinity um lens in there but yeah let's first define a superhero right um super what is superhero give you five minutes to find that not five seconds while i take a cup of water right being a rather the superhero can be defined in many ways but one way we can do that is uh, according to the films Legendary figure, often with special or supernatural abilities or advanced tech, e.g. Batman, who selflessly does good 
<laughs> usually in a costume designed to protect their secret identity. Now, of course, there are a few, ex- there are a few exceptions to the definition, but mostly it holds true, right? Again, superheroes are often white males, usually have an alter ego in which they fight crime. And they're supernatural and sometimes supernatural crime, right? So apparently, it's, it also suggests that and it shows that the American superhero movies tend to follow two kind of patterns of narrative, right? One part of narrative is the idea of a classic monomyth. This was by a man called Joseph Campbell, right? And the monomyth is like an often told story in the Western mythology of a boy who goes on a hero quest, comes home as a man. Now, Campbell's notion of, you know, narrative art can be seen in diverse texts, right? So it's not a new thing, that idea of a hero quest to come back as a man. So from Greek, Greek mythology to the Bible, Abraham, for example, to even, to even modern day stories like Star Wars as well, right? So the idea of people just, the classic monomyth where a, a boy goes on a hero quest, come, comes home as a man, right? It's quite common. And then Campbell then divided this journey into three main sections, right? The departure, initiation, and return, right? And the key thing to this uh, monomyth idea of um, superhero movie patterns is that there's, there's an idea of atonement with the father figure that always happens at the end or near the end of the initiation stage, right? So the atonement or reconciliation means ending conflict with the father figure, right? And that's the key thing to this monomyth. And this can happen different ways, right? So either they gain respect or approval of the father figure, or the hero realizes that the father figure was, you know, ideologically correct, and the hero's rebellion was not needed, or it was pointless. Or it could even be like the, the hero physically or mentally defeated the father figure. Right, but these are all different forms of atonement, which you know symbolically showed the transition of a boy to a man, right? And then in resolving conflict with the father, the hero then asserts his manhood, his manhood, you know, and then able to complete the quest. But much of this monomyth from Campbell does not really align with superhero films, except mostly the atonement of with the father stage. Right, that is often there. So we, they were told they were told that guys who later advanced this um, model, and they called Robert Jewett and John Shelton Lawrence. So they theirs was called an American monomyth, right? Kind of like Campbell's monomyth, but adapted in a unique way. So theirs is like an inverse of the classic monomyth, right? The American one is an inverse of the classic one. And in their theory, it is that an outsider or an outcast, you know, must save a community from a threat because the typical way of, of protecting the community has failed, right? So whether it's the legal system, whether it's the police, whether it's morals, it's failed, right? And early accounts of such American monomyths can be seen in Western movies, right? I don't know, many of us don't watch Western movies because they were more popular before Many of us were born, but Western, Westerns were once like a very, very big hit in American cinema, cinematic world. But yeah, so the American monomyth is perfect for the superhero genre because 
it demonstrates many key traits and characteristics, right? One, a lone hero who comes from outside, you know, is challenged, challenges, so it's challenged by threats that only, only they can handle. They use their masculinity and violence and then, then save the community from outcasts. Right. But one key part of superhero movies and films, as I said before, is the importance of fathers, of father figures. Right? Father figures in these movies provide advice, protection, mentoring as well. But most importantly, father figures exist to instill masculine values and life lessons. Right? So funny thing is, like when I read this, or when I saw this as well, I never really dipped the extent to which this was per- pervasive. But you can just see how everything is just follows a pattern. And I then began to wonder, is this familiar pattern the reason why we love this movie so much? Because they're so familiar to us, but it, or they speak a familiar message to us each time we watch them in different kind of voices. You know, we watch them and we love them so much. Right, let me go on. The father figures on the screen or reality, they don't have to be actual fathers, right? They could be anybody being a father figure, right? So father figures serve as inspiration to encourage, you know, masculine endeavors, you know. They provide symbolically masculine image. You can either serve as an idealized or adversarial function to, for the hero. Now, in contrast, here's where it gets interesting. In contrast, mother figures provide nurturing and emotional support. Not very surprising if you look back at a few ones you've watched. I'm thinking of a um, classic one now, which is um, Spider-Man, Antime. But yeah, let's continue. So mother figures provide nurturing and emotional support. Uh, typically, there's often, occasionally, a father who operates as a mother figure. But you, may not, you, will, not, you will not find mothers who operate as father figures in that sense, right? Now, whether father figures are present in the film or not, superheroes spend a lot of time trying to make their fathers proud or to fulfill the legacy of their father's masculinity. Now, I must admit and say there is an emphasis on, or rather, there might be a bias given where this author, Kara Kavaran's body of work is. There might be a bias to the language they use. Um, But let me just let you guys decide what the bias is. So the father figures in superhero movies also often have an overly masculine profession, right? Or jobs that put them in position of power. So for example, being the owner of a newspaper, so that's the Green Hornet 2011, or the headmaster of a school in, in terms of X-Men, Professor X, you know. Sometimes father figures have jobs that tie them to masculine professions in quotes, like science and tech. So, for example, doctors like Batman's dad or scientists like Amazing Spider-Man's dad or like a weapon designer, so like Tony Stark's dad, for example, of Iron Man, right? Other times, father figures in superhero films have jobs that emphasize the risk-taking element of masculinity. So like fighter pilot in Green Lantern or the stunt rider in Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider was actually... A good movie when I first watched it. That's with Nicolas Cage for anybody who doesn't know. This was 2007. And I watched it again recently last year. It, wasn't, it didn't feel as good. Um, but I think it was a good movie, actually. But yeah, I move on. Sometimes even father figures are as powerful as kings or gods, right? So as in Thor, you know, 
But the point is that almost all superhero fathers have professions that reinforce their masculinity and like strengthen the environment. But in contrast, in the movies, a mother's love... So why a father's love must be earned? No, let me say that the reverse. So mother's love is unconditional, but the father's love must be earned. Right? So this is another um, difference we can see in these movies where, you know, the mother is always there for them in terms of their love, you know, stroking the hair, being a loving, nurturing support. But the father's love always feels like it has to be earned. It's not there by default, right? And again, Kravan, Kravan argues that this is a reflective idea of gender roles and ideas of parenthood that were established post-World War II, which is interesting because post-World War is when Marvel, I think Marvel and DC began to, um, were, were born in that sense. So a lot of these uh, characters, uh, these stories, you know, were established and formed in that era after the, um, the Cold War, actually. No, after, after World War II, rather. You get, I said you get to you guys, like you guys are here, but you guys are here still. So yeah, you get. <laughs> but yeah, in post-war America, right, fathers did indeed, indeed know best, right? So in post-war America, it was very, very patriarchal. So it's definitely no coincidence that it was during the war and post-war, post-war period when most superheroes were invented, right? And their origin stories and relationships with their parents were established. You know, so fathers taught and inspired and mothers were sidelined. Boys became men, and men became superheroes through masculine examples set by their fathers. Yep, you guessed it. Now, apparently, Batman Superman appeared first in the, at the end of the 1930s, right? That's, and that's after the um, Second World War. Wait, let me fact check that. My bad. No, actually, that's during the Second World War. Second World War began 1939 to 1945. Yes, yeah, so Superman and Batman appeared during the World War, right? Um, World War II, precisely. Captain America, Catwoman, and Green Lantern were made in the 1940s. And I think another thing to also think about is the fact that these characters were formed in times of crisis in the world. That's another thing to explore, actually. That's very interesting. But yeah. But the most productive period of superhero creation occurred in the 1960s. So that's the arrival of, arrival of Hulk, Spider-Man, Thor, Iron Man, X-Men, Avengers, etc. Now what becomes obvious, right? You know, when looking at these movies that much more new is that the gender ideology surrounding masculinity and fatherhood became more rigid as women has gained, have gained more e- equality, right? So you'd have thought, you know, maybe as time passed on after the feminist movement in the 1960s, um, you know, the ideology surrounding masculinity and fatherhood in these movies might be, might be more reflective of the times, but actually they became more rigid, you know? So rather than traditional forms of masculinity-based, you know, superhero movies embraced not just masculinity, but hyper-masculinity, right? So, so one end, you have masculinity. On the other end, you have hyper-masculinity. So this hyper-masculinity is a specific form of masculinity that is kind of characterized by a belief that violent and manly and dangerous things are exciting, right? And it's paired with a... With a I won't say callous, but it's paired with like a weird attitude towards women 
and and a derision of anything that is seen as feminine, right? But also, our society kind of codes currently and at the past. Our society looks at emotionality, cooperation, negotiation as feminine traits, right? So, and these kind of ren- these are rendered as weaknesses within the hypermasculinity ideology. But yeah, let's move on. So, these dynamics of gender made a superhero film genre that was undeniably masculine and had like a preoccupation or obsession with father figures for some reason, right? So you often see a common story arc where there's a father, father figure providing inspiration for the son to become a superhero, right? And these are often one of the most like, most commercially and critically successful movies of the genre. So including like all the Batmans, 89, 92, 05, 08, 2012, Spider-Man, Superman, Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, Hellboy, X-Men. So the same thing follows, right? And it follows across all those movies and their sequels or their, re- or their reboots, right? So it's a very, very, it's a very, very pervasive and strong um, structure for these movies, right? And all these films represent the atonement of the father, right? Where the son strives to live up to the father's memory, spirit, and values. So the same thing I said before, right? But interestingly, right, the idea that the atonement for the father is, is often seen as necessary. No, let me say that again. So the idea that the, idea that the atonement for the father is, is key to the narrative has moved beyond, it has moved beyond the main superhero storyline to inform the film in a variety of ways. Right? So what that means in essence is whether what what whatever I just said, you know, even if it sounds like rubbish, <laughs> it just means that nowadays, right, there's films that then show these father figure issues in other characters as well. Beyond the main superhero characters. So for example, in the villains of Constantine with uh Ken, um, Ken Reeves, yep. Electra, the villains in that movie, Electra. I think Electra is uh, Jennifer, Jennifer Gardner, I think. Green Lantern, Kikas, Ant Man, and Thor. They all felt like they needed to live up to the examples of the father figures in their lives, right? So, Thor, you can talk about Loki in that sense. Ant Man, um, what's her name? What's the, what's the Ant Man's? The Wasp? Yeah, Wasp. But there are also films where the father figure provides inspiration for the daughters to become superheroes. Right? Not common, quite rare. This, was, this happened in Blade, X-Men, Kick-Ass. And while the, while the women and girls superheroes are not the leads of the movies, they played integral parts. Right? So in these movies, they were not the lead actors or actresses, but they were key to the movies. Anyway, moving on. There are also films where fatherhood or actual or figural fathers you know, became inspiration for the heroes themselves, right? And a key example is Iron Man 3. So Iron Man 3 can be seen where, you know, Tony Stark met, met that kid in the garage and he kind of took on, took on like a, a parental role, a paternal role, you know, teaching the boy about technology and offering him advice, right? And then I think Tony Stark could relate to the boy because that was the same thing he felt because the boy said he was bullied in school and Tony Stark kind of also felt like it was... He, he was neglected by his dad or was not shown enough love by his dad when he was growing up. So they kind of bonded in that sense. 
But in contrast, mother figures, whether biological or older women, function as emotional substitutes for the biological mother. And they serve a, they serve a very different function in superhero movies, if they are paired. So the vast majority of superhero films lack the motherly figure. That's very true, because if you think about it, I can't really think about many superhero films that had mother, motherly figures that were very, very important. Right? And the motherly figures, superheroes' mothers, rather, they rarely operated outside the home. So they were often inside the home, and they were anything beyond the context of a housewife or retired matron. Right? They were shown as nurturers, and the emphasis was often on caretaking. So even though sometimes it was also on protection, it was often at the end of the film where they needed to be rescued, you know? And this can be seen, you know, with all Spider-Man movies with Aunt May, you know, where she raised Peter Parker after, you know, his parents died. And, you know, she was often the marginalized mother, marginalized mother figure in the movie, but she kept supporting and nurturing, you know, Peter in the movie. Throughout the transition from from a teenager to like a super powered Avenger in that sense, and she that and that without even knowing, you know who he was. I think interestingly, right? I think if you notice with the Spider Man as well, you see that the new one with Tom Holland, the new the new dude, Aunt May is much more, um, much more in the focus now. So like they've compared to. Uh, the one with Tobey Maguire, the old Spider-Man, the new one, Aunt May is much more in the focus. She's much more active in the movie, even though she's still a maternal figure, in a sense, she's much more active in the movie. So, so I think maybe to some extent, they've tried, they've seen that. I, I, I guess they have. I don't know who the hell knows. But she's also younger, which is interesting. I think that was a very interesting thing to find out that she was also a younger, made to look a lot more appealing to the audience, in quote. I wonder why. But anyway, I, I continue. So of all entire 84 films that, that Kravan, Kravan sampled, there are only three films that showed mothers inspiring their kids, right? And in one notable film where, where a mother encouraged heroics, it was not a son, but it was for her daughter, who she encouraged. But that encouragement then led to troubled relationship. And this was in a movie called Watchmen. If you haven't seen Watchmen, it's a very good movie. I think you should see it. It's weird, but it's a very good movie. I found it weird, but I found it good at the same time. Um, and the movie sh- and the movie references um Sally Jupiter, um who who forced her daughter Laurie, the Silk Spectre, to follow her footsteps. But I won't get into that. So that's one example where we see mothers inspiring their kids. But this one was done. Still, she was inspiring a, a daughter, not a son. Right, and. Probably the best example of motherhood being like an inspirational figure to superheroes was probably Thor. So in Thor, The Dark World, we saw where Thor's mother, Frigga, was played, played a very active role. Right? She was engaged and active, and she even got a fight scene. Right? But she still has some problems in her character, according to how she's portrayed. That's what I mean. So for one thing, she died fighting an enemy who later defeated by her son. So again, the son rescues her or avenges her in a way. And, you know, it still shows that she had to be killed in order to advance Thor's storyline. Right? So, but then again, she's more present and dynamic than majority of superheroes' mothers. 
right, which is interesting. But also, if you watched um, Guardians of the Galaxy, Peter Quill, Star-Lord, is also inspired by his mother. You know, she inspires love for music and his climatic um, final scene in the movie. You know, you, you saw where he flashed back to her deathbed saying, take my hand. You know, and then this inspires him to take the hand of his female teammates, Gamora. But anyway, that's another example of where we see um, a mother inspiring the superhero to do justice. So not very many, just three examples out of many superhero movies. And that kind of shows where mothers lie, mother figures lie. You know, so there are no films where mother figures encourage their sons to become superheroes. Right? There are films where mothers are present. And there are films where mothers, mothers are supportive. But more often than not, they function as the oblivious foil to superheroes' antics. So again, you know, they don't see what they should see in that sense. You know, another example is Aunt May, right? Now, one, one, one example that is recent that shows the difference between father and mother inspiration in superhero movies is Ant-Man, right? So in Ant-Man, I think that's one 2015. Um, no, I think that's, yeah, I'm correct. Um, Hope, who is uh, the older guy's daughter, the science, I can't remember the scientist's name, but the scientist's daughter, Hope. Hope wanted to wear her dad's shrinking suit and be the hero. But her dad said no, right? And instead, he hired Scott Lang, um, who was um, Paul Rudd, um, to take over his heroic mantle, right? And Lang, Lang, I mean, Scott Lang then explained to her that, you know, he's expendable to her dad. And then Hank, whose dad cares about her too much to let her risk her life. Now, if she were the hero of the story, Hope would defy her father and prove that she always takes to become a superhero. And what that means is that if, if Hope was a guy, that narrative should play out in the sense of Hope would then say, you know, Dad, I know you said you don't want to do this. I would do it regardless. And then you prove him wrong, become a superhero. But she's not the hero. She's a woman and the love interest, you know. So her father makes a decision for her. And later in the film, she finds that her mother was a superhero but was killed on a mission. So again, we see advances where the maternal figures who are meant to be very, very active and contribute highly to the justice of these superheroes are either, either killed to advance the story of this main superhero or become supportive acts in that sense. So instead of using that as, as, as inspiration, again, speaking of hope still, instead of hope using that as inspiration, as male superheroes often do, she folds to her father's demands, you know, and she feels like Ada has lost too much, so she, she stops arguing and she lets Lang take over. Right, which is quite interesting again. But yeah, the key point is that um, this Karakvaran argues that a lot of these films are produced and consumed by society that's patriarchal by nature. And that is why pretty much we eat this up. Um, but it works. It actually does work because this, this movie is gross. A, a billion bucks. Right. But the point is, they are rooted in a culture, you know, which continuously reiterates that mothers are to be scrutinized and judged. But fathers are truly important for creating heroic sons. Right. And whether that's true or not is up for you to think about and debate. But I thought that would give a good idea of you know how how movies reflect 
the world beyond what we see. Not to overdeep it too much because I've just given examples of what we've seen on TV. I thought I'd share with you guys. And again, the roots of all this lay in the in the ideology that you know boys who have too close a relationship with their mother figures would grow up emasculate, feminine, or or gay, right? And this explains why many stories, origin stories, were created during the era of the war, right? And the interesting thing about about this argument of Kara Kvaran is saying that even though these movies were created, even though the origin stories were created during that era, as time has gone on, they've only amplified those narratives. They haven't like they haven't rejiggled them, but only only been amplified, right? And it seems like they're, they're made for a culture that privileges the masculine over the feminine, you know, while proclaiming itself to be gender neutral. Right? So it's a bit of a, um, what do you call it? Another classic case of the hypocrisy of Hollywood. You might say that, you might say it is the nature's order. I don't know. Up to you to decide. Um, but I just thought I'll share this with you guys and leave with this note. Pretty much saying that mothers may give birth to superheroes but it's the fathers who create them. And that is what movies we see have told us and portrayed across time from 1930s to date. All right, that's me done on this series slash weird. Um, I won't call it weird, but I want to do this just to give an idea of um, what this looks like and the, uh, the complex phenomenon that goes into movies and how stories are not just stories but there's always a deeper meaning to them beyond what we consume when we go out to watch them all right cheerio hey there thanks for listening to this offseason episode of the yellow pill we're still on a break but we'll be back in a couple of weeks with new and fresh and exciting content but before then make sure to follow us on instagram at the yellow pill pod and on twitter yellow pill underscore pod to keep up to date with everything else we're putting up until we come back hope you're enjoying the holidays we wish you all the love joy comfort peace gladness